Now I want us this evening, if you will be so good as to turn to another of the thirsting psalms, Psalm 63, and I want us to read it before I begin to speak to you. Psalm 63. You will know that there are a number of psalms which express the thirst of the psalmist's soul for God, and this is another of them. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Our theme this evening is really another way of expressing the overall title of the conference, which is Desiring God. And our theme is summed up in the words, Thirsting for God. It is really the, the theme, of course, not only of the psalm we read earlier, but of this psalm and of so many parts of Scripture. Just the other week, someone sent me a book, which is one of the very nice things that happens to many of us from time to time. Publishers and authors and other people send copies of free books to pastors like myself and for Scotsmen. That is a blessing greatly to be desired. It was a blessing to me in many ways. It contained these words. It is a mark of spiritual barrenness in the church when people come to worship to fulfill a duty rather than to satisfy an appetite. It is a mark of spiritual barrenness in the church when people come to worship to fulfill a duty rather than to satisfy an appetite. That coincided, as it happened, with my 
reading Psalm 63 where David cries in the first verse of the psalm, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I was driven to ask myself as I do want to suggest to you we might all ask of ourselves this evening, is that really the language of our souls before God tonight? Does that express the things that are deepest in our own lives, in the hidden areas of our spirits? Is this the language that we take hold of and say, that suits the longings of my soul this evening? The Bible frequently, as you will know, not only in the Psalms but elsewhere, speaks about thirst as a condition of the body which can be applied to the soul. In the Psalm we read, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You find the same note in Psalm 143, verse 6. I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And you find the prophets doing the same. Isaiah summons the people. Ho, he says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, buy and drink. And our Lord Jesus on the day of the Feast of Tabernacles, on that last great day of the feast, says, Let everyone who thirsts come to me and drink. It is the language of physical experience which is applied to spiritual conditions. And of course we are immediately in great difficulty in the Western world because I suppose there is hardly anybody here this evening who has really experienced genuine thirst. Certainly the majority of us don't know anything about real thirst. We sometimes use phrases like, if you're American, I am dying for a cup of coffee. If you're British, I am dying for a cup of tea. Especially if you're in America. But you know, we really do not know anything about genuine thirst. We don't know anything about the experience of having our lips parched and our tongues swollen and cleaving to the roof of our mouth and our whole body apparently drained and dehydrated and racked with pain because of it. We know little of physical thirst. And the truth is, God help us, we know all too little about spiritual thirst. So that the psalmist language can even sound somewhat extreme to us. My body longs for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water like the heart that pants after the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. It is not, of course, that we 
don't know thirst in the sense of having great burning longings for things. We thirst after all kinds of things. Some of them are just the rather tawdry toys of this passing world, strangely enough. And yet we know a deep kind of soul thirst for them. Things like material prosperity or personal pleasure or popularity or power and position. Some are more sophisticated things that we apply the word thirst to. We speak about thirsting for knowledge and sometimes for aesthetic things, nobler things like beauty and so on. But seldom do we know what it is to thirst for God and to be like the bride in the song of songs who cries through the city streets, Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Someone possessed with a burning desire that is greater than physical thirst. Have you seen him whom my soul loves for I long for him? That's the thirst the psalmist is speaking about. Well, let me turn with you to the first part of this psalm especially and ask some questions of it this evening. The first would be this. What exactly is this thirst? And the reply that we would get from the psalm, I think, is that it speaks about a deep, intense, urgent, and all-consuming desire for God's presence, for his fellowship, and for his favor, for a felt sense of God meeting with his people. And whereas its physical expression is a miserable experience to be avoided at all costs, the spiritual reality of which the physical experience is a symbol is a blessed condition greatly to be coveted by God's people. For the scripture tells us that he satisfies the longing soul. Jesus pronounces the condition blessed of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is why God's people take up this language when they are in a condition of true spiritual health. You find it in many of the hymns that we sing. You notice how many of them begin with the expression, Oh, for, oh, for a closer walk with God. Oh, for a heart to praise my God. Oh, for a faith that will not shrink. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. That's not a thousand people, but a thousand tongues that I may sing the glories and praise of my Redeemer. This is the kind of language that people sing. You don't actually find that kind of longing in very many modern hymns today. That longing and thirst after God. 
Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou light of life, thou light of men from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. Now we need to ask of the psalmist, what are the marks of this thirst? You will notice that there are certain qualities. The first of them is urgency. Look at verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Many of the translations have early I seek you. And that really is the, the most literal translation of what the psalmist is saying. It is the kind of condition that will not be fobbed off with anything else. It has an urgency about it. It cannot, in a sense, be delayed or put aside. It's not the kind of thing that the psalmist can control and say, well, I'm experiencing this, but it will need to wait for later. This is an all-consuming urgency that has gripped the psalmist's soul. You find the same thing in Psalm 42. It is like the deer panting for streams of water. You try and put it off and say, now wait a while, there are other things first of all. The deer is parched and panting and longing. There is an urgency about this. And when this thirst grips the soul of the child of God, there is something that is all-consuming and urgent about it. You notice there is secondly a clarity about this thirst. There is nothing vague as to what the psalmist is seeking after. This is not some kind of vague mysticism. Of course there is a thirst which people experience in the state of nature which is normally very vague. You will know the sort of thing. You may be able to recollect it from your own days in a state of nature rather than a state of grace. We have a deep sense of dissatisfaction very often with life and unhappiness. We have tried to drink from wells that hold no water and say, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. I find this kind of thing again and again in the center of the city of Glasgow with people with broken lives, the kind of lives that are romanticized in the television version of what they are doing. But my dear friends, I tell you, the wreckage of this modern society is washed up on the front door of churches like ours. And the anguish and the sense of longing from the eyes of a young girl who had been in the streets of Glasgow for years, I saw coming out this kind of longing as she said to me, in God's name is there nobody who can help me. She was the fruit of that kind of lifestyle. The common testimony of people is that we have a vague sense of unrest and dissatisfaction. We don't really know what we want. You know the kind of thing you sometimes see in children. 
I have been traveling recently from Glasgow to Edinburgh for a number of church meetings. And I was on the train the other week coming back from Edinburgh, sitting doing some work at a table, and uh, across the passage there was a lady with a little child. And the child was obviously tired. It was late in the afternoon and wanted the attention of the mother. Want up, he said. Uh, And she picked him up and put him on the seat. He was no sooner there than he said, want down. And she picked him up, put him down on the floor. Want up again, he said. The mother picked him up, put him up on the chair again. She said, after this had gone on for some considerable time, together with screams and tears, she said, oh, my poor little thing, you are so tired, you don't really know what you want. The man across the table from me who was working on papers raised his head a little and said to me, I could make a few suggestions. But of course the woman was right. The child didn't really know what he wanted. And there are multitudes of men and women out there in a sick and needy world this evening and they do not know what is making them have some sense of longing. But David has no vagueness about his longing. It is not his throne he wants back, although it looks as if Absalom, from whom he is fleeing at this time, is going to rob him of his throne. It's not the peace of Jerusalem he wants back again, although he is living a life harried from one place to another in the Judean desert. It's not his comfort he wants back. It is God that he wants. Do you notice how it is clarified in what he says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. You get the same thing in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You will notice it is not blessing. It is God that this thirst is for. But there is not only an urgency and a clarity, there is an intensity about it. My body, he says, longs for you. My soul thirsts for you. Every part of his being, in other words, is being affected by this. Now, we would recognize that there is such a thing as an unhealthy intensity which leaves us less than well-balanced people, as we would say. But this is something which cannot be confined to one area of life. It is something that takes up the whole of the believer's being. And the urgency and the clarity and the intensity of this thirst are something that David 
can only express when he says, Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. Now, if the first question we would need to address to the psalmist is, What is this thirst? The second would be, Where does it come from? Well, it does not come, this thirst for God, it does not come from fallen human nature. It is indeed an evidence of grace. And you will notice the psalmist says at the beginning of verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. He is speaking to the God who is already his God. And when we are in a state of grace, that will always in some measure be true of us. Thirst for milk is one of the first signs of physical life. And thirst for God is one of the first signs of spiritual life. I read these words the other day. Observe how this is with the newborn babe. It thirsts by the power of an irresistible instinct after its mother's milk, the destined food and nourishment of its infant life. Just so it is with the heaven-born soul and with the newborn revived church. It thirsts by the force of a resistless spiritual instinct after the sincere milk of the word, the food and nourishment of the immortal soul. In dead souls and dead churches, there is nothing even approaching to a thirst for the preaching of the word of God. But when we are in a state of grace, there will be a thirst for God himself. And the way that we come to God is, of course, through his word. And you will therefore find that whenever someone is brought into a genuine state of grace, there will be this double thirst, a thirst for God. And a desire for the word of God through which we come to know him. Now in times when we are in a heightened state of grace, for example in days of revival, that becomes more evident still. If you have read much of the history of revival, you will find that this is the great characteristic. It is a people thirsting after God. They do not need to be cajoled into coming into the house of God. They stream there. In the days of the revival in the Hebrides in Scotland, People have told me how the fishing boats turned round when they were out at sea and came back in with the compulsion of the power of God upon their lives and the men began streaming into the church. 
I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones telling us how in Wales in the revival, part of which I think he had seen, there was one particular occasion when God had come down upon a whole congregation of people. And it happened that the stated supply the following Sunday was someone who knew little of the things of God or the word of God and nothing of what had been happening in that place. And he began to dissertate upon a particular philosophy of life when from the congregation a man whose head was laid on the pew in front cried out, Give us God, sir. Give us God. And that thirst and longing in days of a heightened state of grace is one of the great marks of revival. No wonder the hymn leads us to sing, Revive thy work, O Lord, create soul thirst for thee. One of my fellow students in Glasgow University, when I was studying theology, was a, a man who was the first convert in the village of Barvas in Lewis. He was the janitor of the school. And he used to sit and sometimes shake his head wearily as he was introduced to Paul Tillich and his companions as our theological mentors and Rudolf Bultmann as our New Testament model. And he shook his head and said to me one day, it's a terrible thing when a church has lost its hunger for God. Now you will notice that this thirst is stimulated in three different ways, the psalmist tells us. It is stimulated from the past and from the present and from the future. Do you notice from the past, first of all, in the psalmist's own experience? He says in verse 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. He recollects, in other words, high occasions in his past spiritual experience when he has been in the presence of God, when he has been gazing upon the beauty and the glory of God in his sanctuary. And here he says, in verse 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary. Now you find the same note in Psalm 42. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul in verse 4. How I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God. Now, do you notice the thing that the psalmist is recollecting? What he is recollecting are the blessings which he found in public worship. That already has been mentioned today and emphasized that one of God's primary purposes is the gathering of his people together that there in the assembled company of God's people he may come down in special blessing upon them. There are, as you will know, and as the Puritans love to emphasize, three spheres of Christian worship. Public in the company of God's people, 
domestic in the family circle and private in the communion of your own soul with God. Now clearly you cannot divorce public worship from private worship. That would be hypocrisy. And Matthew Henry says public worship will never excuse us from private worship. Nor can parents in a family context make public or private worship or both together alternatives to domestic worship. And one of the things that we greatly need to see again in the Christian world is the resurrection of a domestic godliness within the sphere of our families. Children who are taught from earliest days that just as naturally as consuming food, we want to consume the bread of life. That the place where we long to be is in fellowship, not simply with one another, but with the living God. That the head of this house indeed is Jesus Christ. And it is his companionship, his fellowship we long to know. That's the place, my dear friends, where children learn something about the majesty and glory and greatness of God. It's where they ought to learn to enjoy the Lord forever. Within the context of the domestic sphere. But the psalmist is speaking about public worship. And how his soul has in the past been ravished there. As he has assembled with God's people. I have seen you in the sanctuary, he says. And beheld your power and your glory. Now that's not only a blessing to him at the time you see. That's something that touches his soul now. When he's in a dry and thirsty land. Which is the desert of Judah. And you will know that David is fleeing from Absalom his son. He is going through all the torture of this tribulation. The treachery in his own family. The sin in his own past, which he probably is all too well aware of now at this point. And he says, where shall I turn to? What shall I look to? Oh, he says, as I begin even to doubt the goodness of God, I will look back to these days in the sanctuary. What happened then? Well, he says, I beheld the power of God. I beheld the glory of God in the sanctuary. I remember, he says in Psalm 42, how I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving amongst the festive throng. And now his soul is enlarged and his hope is set upon God. And in Psalm 42, he says to his soul, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God and the place where he had really come to learn of the majesty and glory and faithfulness and goodness and covenant love of God was in the sanctuary. My brother ministers, I need to pause and with great diffidence say to you that I think we need to labor with all our being that that is what the people of God find in the sanctuary of God. And that their souls are fed with the truth of Holy Scripture which will explain 
expand their minds and enlarge their spirits and give them a vision which in the desert lands will give them hope. And I want to say to you in the context of our present theme of this conference that some of the superficialities of modern worship will never do that for people. We have a student, one who was a student, in our church who left and went away to an English city. It's a big thing for a Scotsman to do, but he went away to an English city. And he studied there in a university. And the great thing that he longed to do was to find a place where he might be fed on the word of God. And he went round for eight weeks. Eight weeks he went from place to place, from one place to another, and at the end of the eight weeks he telephoned me one Sunday evening. He said, I have traveled two hours on a bus from the other side of this city. And he said, over these eight weeks I have been to 16 churches. I have been warmly welcomed. I have been brought into schemes for hospitality. I have been offered the opportunity of homes and meals. I have listened to the most marvelous music which I've greatly appreciated. I have had all kinds of discussion groups and listened to addresses on almost every topic under the sun. He said, I'm weary as I come back to where I live this evening. And I am asking, will nobody in this city Feed my soul. And my dear friends, I think that all over the Western world in the Christian church, there may be many who will be asking the same question. We need to cry to God that he will teach us that the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jerusalem. In his work on worship, David Clarkson, the Puritan, says things like this, preaching on that verse in Psalm 87, under the title, Public Worship to be Preferred Before Private. <clears throat> I think that's only about a third of the title, actually. But uh, he says... The Lord is more glorified by public worship. There is more of the Lord's presence in public worship. For here are the clearest manifestations of God. There is more spiritual advantage to be gained in the use of public ordinances. And public worship is more edifying. He reminds us that public worship is the nearest resemblance of heavenly worship that earth knows. For in heaven, so far as the scripture describes it to us, all the worship of that glorious company is public. They make one glorious congregation and so jointly together sing the praises of him that sits on the throne and the praises of the Lamb and continually employed in this public worship they are to all eternity. We do not value public worship as we ought. We are in a disintegrating 
society which tends to be individualized and we greatly need to restore the priority of public worship as the place where God designs peculiarly to bless his people. You will notice that it's also stimulated in the present. Psalm 63 at the end of verse 1. He says, My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, that is the present situation that the psalmist is in. He is cast out from his own home and city and from the household of God's people. And as I say, he is the victim of this dread treachery of Absalom, his son. And the dry and weary land that is around him is a token to him of the situation that he finds himself in. He is thirsting more for God than he is for water. Do you ever think that God sometimes deprives his children of the means of grace to give them an appetite? I just ask the question. I wonder sometimes if God deprives us of the means of grace in order to give us a different quality of thirst after him. I was visiting someone who has for some considerable time been sick and confined to his home and to bed. And he said to me, I have greatly valued my private communion with the Lord during this time, but I will never again take the blessings of the means of grace for granted. Being a Highlander, the means of grace to him were the means of grace in public worship. Now look how this thirst is stimulated not only by the past and by the present, but by the future. In verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips my mouth will praise you. His thirst is excited, you see, by the promises of a gracious God and the power and the glory and the love of God have given him an assurance that he will not thirst in vain. Now finally, if the first question is what is this thirst? And the second, where does it arise from? The third will be, where will this thirst be satisfied? And verse 5 tells us that it most assuredly will be satisfied. The psalmist now has no doubt my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. But it will be satisfied only in God. And so the prophet cries out to the people in his day, why do you spend your labor on that which does not satisfy? Why spend money on what is not bread? 
And he is urging them, drink deeply of the wells of salvation and set your heart on God. Not on his blessings, not on the benefits that he brings, but on God himself. It's this that St. Augustine had grasped when he spoke these famous words. You have made us for yourself and our hearts find no rest until they find it in you. Now creation and redemption both bear testimony to this. There is only one end, you see, for which God created and formed the world and made us. And that is for his own exclusive glory and honor. There is only one end for which our Lord redeemed his people. And that was to bring him a revenue of glory. And when you and I find this thirst that God implants within our souls, it is only going to be satisfied when our souls are set on the same longing that God himself has for his glory and honor. And it is this that by every conceivable means God is going to set to work in our souls to set us thirsting after. Let me close not with a text from scripture but with something which has helped me over the years. I guess in all our minds and hearts there is the question how does this kind of hunger really begin to grow in an ordinary believer like myself? How do I increasingly learn to thirst after God? The French, you know, have a proverb, which I will give to you in English for two good reasons. You might not understand it in French, and I don't know any French. <laughs> but here it is in English. The appetite grows with eating. The appetite grows with eating. You know that physically, don't you? What happens as somebody eats more than they ought is that they find it more difficult to be satisfied with less before. Somebody who is trying to take weight off their body and deprives themselves of food finds their appetite shrinks and they need because they want less as time goes on. 
one of the fearful things about depriving yourself of the bread of life, my dear friends, in its written and living form, is that you find your appetite sickens. And one of the evidences of that sick state is, I have no appetite, doctor. But the appetite grows with eating. And as you begin to feed your soul upon the Word of God, do not be deceived into thinking, as we were learning today already, that there is some mystic way in which we are going to get to meet with God and encounter Him and know Him, the God-given way by which we come to feast on God in all the glories of his character is his inscripturated word. And as you feed on it more and more, I tell you, your appetite will grow. And as you drink deeply of the wells of salvation, you will find yourself saying, I hunger and I thirst. Jesus, my manna be. I believe there are few things the living God longs to hear from his people in these days when we live in a dry and thirsty land is the cry O oh God you are my God earnestly I seek you my soul thirsts after you my body longs for you God grant that we may see such times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord in our generation. Let us pray. Our blessed Lord, we bow before you and acknowledge how little we know of soul thirst for you. We pray that in your infinite grace you will come and create that hunger and thirst after you that is your delight and our blessing. In your mercy, hear our prayer for the sake of our blessed Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.